I really want to see people succeed. And someone else's success doesn't take away from mine. And I think that as a society, we've gotten into this uh, mindset that someone else winning is actually your loss. And that's why we have so much hate and so much negativity being thrown around because we're just being like pitted against each other. But in reality, the world is full of opportunities and, and resources and there is enough for everybody. Like I truly believe that. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. My guest today is Lily from Foundation Devices. A few weeks ago, I asked for recommendations for someone I could speak with about Bitcoin and privacy. Lily's name rose to the top, so I was delighted to get the chance to speak with her. I wanted to cover privacy because I feel its support has been waning from the left recently, which I find troublesome. I hope to spend a few more episodes talking about privacy-related issues. And in this discussion with Lily, we cover a lot of the broad general themes, as well as specific privacy issues related to Bitcoin. So please enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Well, Lily, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. I'm happy to have you. Thanks for having me, Mark. Excited for it. So it was a couple of months ago, I sent out a tweet uh, asking for recommendations for somebody who would be uh, good to talk to you about privacy and Bitcoin and privacy, and your name came to the top. So I'm delighted to have you. Thank you. That means a lot to see people in the community recommend me. So I feel like privacy is an issue that somebody has an experience that draws them into it, whether that's a personal experience or uh, that they're working in it directly. How is it that privacy became important to you? Was it a personal experience or something uh, outside of that? Yeah. So I guess my realization in, in privacy was not based on my own experiences, but based on, you know, what I saw going on uh, with other people and seeing, you know, innocent people getting flagged for all kinds of things. And that accelerated, you know, after 2020 that I saw people getting banned from PayPal, uh, from Venmo for their beliefs. I saw people in Canada getting their bank accounts shut down because they donated to uh, certain causes. And that could be, that could easily be me because (laughs) I say a lot of controversial stuff online as so does everybody else. I mean, everybody has a group of people that thinks they're controversial. And if those people are in power, then they're at risk. And that's why it's important to protect your privacy. Yeah. Extrapolating on that point a little bit more, to me, privacy is much like health in the sense that you don't, you, you take it for granted until it's gone. And so I'm wondering now, since privacy has become of a greater concern to you, when you encounter individuals uh, in the community or socially, and you talk to them about what you're doing, often the refrain is, you know, privacy, meh, well, I've got nothing to hide, right? Yeah. So w- what is your retort to that? How do you counter that position? Yeah. So every time someone tells me like, they don't care, they have nothing to hide, I kind of just ask them a couple of questions. I'm like, well, if you have nothing to hide, like, why don't you post your passwords online? Why don't you write down everybody you hate? Why don't you tell me who you voted for? Why don't you just, what if I showed you a list of all the videos you ever watched? And like, they are just kind of like 
shocked by it. I'm like, well, this is the information that somebody has on you. Um, not only your governments, but also different corporations. Uh, your corporations know more about you than you know about yourself. And that information will become public knowledge if you become interesting, if you become a target that could be used against you. Like, I think this is more true for people who are like public figures or they want to run for office. There's always something that comes out, some video, some uh, article that they wrote or something that, that compromises them. And I'm like, just going beyond that and explaining what happens when this goes beyond uh, using your information for ads, targeted ads. I'm like, what if they do something else? Uh, what if they use it to shut your accounts? What if they use it uh, to ban you based on your habits? Like they did with people like uh, Andrew Tate and groups like Gays Against Groomers. What if your spending habits start to be weaponized against you? And that's not something that's um, a fantasy. It's already happening with the carbon credit system. MasterCard already developed uh, an API that you can integrate into different digital products to show, uh, you know, are you buying something that's bad for the environment? And what's this, like, who's going to decide that? I think you want to take control of your data because your data is an asset, just like the house that you live in and the car that you drive. Right, exactly. It's, we think of it much um, more passively uh, than we should because, yes, you may not have anything personally that you feel like uh, is compromising, but nonetheless, that data is being used in one form or another to, uh, you know, on the more benign side for for advertising all the way up to the more uh, benevolent side uh, in countries perhaps that are less uh, democratic than ours. But even then, we've seen, you know, situations here in the past few years where even that is being called into question. So it, it's it's a lot more present and concerning than I think people uh, initially felt over the past right. uh, decade or so. I, I remember, you know, as a more left-leaning person in the early 2000s, the, the Patriot Act being such a huge deal for uh, Democrats yeah, and the privacy infringements that that entailed uh, in addition to the Bank Secrecy Act. And yet now it seems like the party has fallen silent on how privacy uh, is compromised for for all groups, you know. And, and so that's, you know, a big part of why I wanted to have you on is because, again, this is not a particular party uh, issue. This is a this is a right of privacy for for everybody, and and so uh, again, I, I'm eager to continue to hash this out here going forward. I think one thing is like we take our democracy for granted. You know, we expect things to stay how they were, um, and the reason why you know this country became so great is because the citizens were very involved um, in their own affairs and in their. Uh, local politics, like they made sure that the uh, policies that were set forth were in their interests and like in the interests of their communities. And part of that um, was that privacy piece. And the, and the Patriot Act basically nuked uh, privacy protections for a lot of individuals. That that was the first like domino to fall. And like, you know, we might become like China someday. Why, why can't we not become like them? You know, every empire like falls eventually. And a lot, and that happens when the citizens become complacent 
and they hand over their autonomy to somebody else. And complacency potentially becomes heightened when you're afraid of what somebody's going to do with your data in the first place. So it, it's, um, it, it, you're, you're afraid to speak up because you're afraid of your data, your identity being uh, disclosed. Yeah. And taken advantage of in the wrong manner. So it's kind of that, that um, self-fulfilling prophecy in a way where the more that they can control the data, the less likely you're wanting to uh, speak up and compromise yourself in any particular manner. Yeah, it's really hard too because a lot of workplaces have uh, policies against like social media use and like sharing your personal opinions online. So for you to get involved, you would have to do it either anonymously uh, through money, anonymous donations, or through a pseudonym. Like it's it's very hard to express yourself, you know. So let's get into Bitcoin and privacy within within Bitcoin. How do you explain privacy? as it relates to Bitcoin and whether or not it, it is private from a, from a 30,000 foot overview, is Bitcoin private or not? Honestly, Bitcoin, the way I describe it, it's not private by default. Um, but what the strongest characteristic of Bitcoin is it enables censorship resistant money transfers. And that in and of itself uh, makes it a superior form of money because that gives it some privacy if you're comparing it to uh, the traditional system. The traditional system, if you want to transfer your own money, you have to go to the bank and you have to fill out a form and you have to say who that money is going to, how much you're transferring, uh, why you're transferring it. So in that sense, Bitcoin is private. Like You don't have to give out this kind of information and that can be uh, masked. And Bitcoin can only be private for you if you're acquiring it um, non-KYC. And that's that's an important point that I you know, try to talk about. I know it's uncomfortable for a lot of people, but the reason why like these Canadian truckers got doxxed is because they donated KYC coin right off of their, uh, their Coinbase accounts or out of their private wallets that were once like linked to their account. So they transferred from their account to their wallet. So if you're giving out your personal information to acquire Bitcoin, it's not private. And yes, there are tools we can possibly get into later to help uh, make them private even after you buy them. But I would say Bitcoin is, is mostly private, but you have to take precautions. You know, you have to use tools to make it private because it's not private on the base layer. It's an open monetary network, and that's what makes it possible to do censorship resistant payments. But the other side of the coin is everything is recorded indefinitely and visible to people uh, with a block explorer. You've described the difference between privacy and anonymity. Um, why don't you do that for us now? Because I think it's an important distinction uh, before moving forward. Yeah, so um, anonymity is like when your identity is masked. So like, let's say I'm sitting here and I hear two people um, next door talking about stuff. I know they're talking about stuff, but I don't know who's involved in the conversation. Privacy is like when I send a message to like my mom, for example, via signal, uh, the contents of that message is hidden, but it's known that like a message was sent from like me to her. So the contents are masked um, when something is private in communications. 
and the identity is masked when it's an anonymous uh, communication. So getting back to the the discussion of uh, censorship resistant, people will point to the Canadian trucker example and say it is censorship resistant. They had their Bitcoin taken away by the government. What is your response to that that scenario and that situation? Well, there were so many um, issues with the way that that was carried out. You know, number one, it was very public. Um, the donations were collected publicly. And people were filming a lot of these truckers receiving money, which is so dumb. Um, they also did not properly educate people on how to donate Bitcoin um, anonymously. Just because, like, if you send an ad, if you send Bitcoin, to an address associated with another party, in this case, the Canadian truckers, that can be tracked. And people can know that it's coming from you. But if you um, like coin join it, or if you got it non-KYC, you have a little bit of like plausible deniability, like when you're transferring uh, these payments. So they were essentially able to track down, you know, who sent these payments. Um, The organizers were very public. So they were able to to find them and you know request those funds. Like if you want to donate to a cause in Bitcoin, especially a cause that's flagged by the government as uh, financial terrorism, you have to do it um, in a private manner. You can't just assume oh Bitcoin is is private. Like okay, you could transfer, and it is censorship resistant. There is nothing that the government could do to stop these people from sending money to the truckers. But where did they catch them? in their failure to keep that transfer private. Right. So people will say that, you know, non-KYC Bitcoin is incredibly challenging to do, to obtain. And uh, there's mining, there's ATMs, uh, and then in-person transactions. Are there others that are missing? And are there other additional ways of um, non-KYC Bitcoin that you think are, are coming down in the future? Well, I think the first non-KYC method to fall if governments start cracking down on this is Bitcoin ATMs, just because they are the most convenient. They're everywhere. Um, You can find them easily using like the coin ATM radar tracker. Everybody can use that, you know, if they come across it because it's like using a typical ATM. I think a lot of people underestimate um, how efficient it is to use a DEX, a decentralized exchange. So something like BISC, uh, HODL, HODL, or if you're a Lightning user, you can use RoboSats. Uh, basically, it's like there's a bunch of offers up saying, okay, I want to buy 10 Bitcoins for X amount, or I want to sell one Bitcoin for X amount. And then you can take that offer and make that trade, or you can submit your own offers. So with BISC, people complain that it's uh, they trade at a premium. If you actually submit your own offers, more than likely they will get accepted. So I like to submit an offer and I'll wait like a few days for someone to take it. And then we do the trade. Another really easy way to do uh, non-KYC Bitcoin is Azteco vouchers, which is like buying uh, Bitcoin with cash. So you can go on Azteco's site and search for a vendor near you. Um, You go to them, you give them cash, they give you a voucher and then you redeem that voucher online, you just put in the voucher number and you put in an address and it'll send you that Bitcoin. You can do this like using cardcoins.co, which I really like because you get Bitcoin in exchange for a prepaid visa card. So you can buy a prepaid visa 
or a MasterCard from CVS um, using cash. And then you can go on card coins and just swap that out for Bitcoin. I feel like that's super easy. Everybody knows how to do that. So there is a lot of ways that you can get this. Um, another one would be P2P markets. So if someone's uh, buying or selling Bitcoin for that, uh, make sure to check uh, the laws in your jurisdiction about um, transacting P2P to make sure it's it's legal. But you can totally use the DEX. You can use these Azteco vouchers. You can use card coins. Uh, you can mine Bitcoin. That That's like, depending on your electricity costs, now it's a little harder. Uh, electricity costs going up and also Bitcoin price uh, going down while the hash rate goes up makes it not profitable for most uh, retail miners. But if you can mine at a slight like slight loss, I think it's worth it just to have that private uh, Bitcoin. This is backing up a little bit, and, a, and it's a big question, but one that you obviously have a great deal of expertise in. And it's how do we build systems that are inherently private, that aren't simply opt-in, meaning we have privacy right now on the internet is you have to take steps to uh, gain it, right? Right. Whereas how do we build systems, including Bitcoin, where it is privacy by default? Yeah, it's a loaded question. And I think it, it goes back to the developers of this software. They have to inherently build their technology so it can't be evil, I like to say. Um, and what I mean by that is they need to like build in uh, privacy like into the code of the software. Like A good example would be uh, the app that we developed at my company, Foundation Devices, it's the Envoy app, and it connects to Tor by default. Um, it'll actually be the first uh, mobile wallet on the iPhone market that connects to Tor by default. Why is that important? It's important because realistically, most people are not going to run a Bitcoin node. They either don't have the infrastructure to do so, or they don't have the know-how or time. It is what it is. Like This is how, how people are. So we need to build our tech to accommodate them and try to protect them as much as possible. So at least when you're routing your traffic through Tor, the wallet provider, in this case, foundation, does not know um, your XPUBs, doesn't know who you're sending the Bitcoin to, how much you're sending, when you're sending it. But if you're using a wallet that doesn't do that, then it's going to reveal everything about you to the people who make the wallet. Is that a bad thing? Only if that wallet provider gets compromised one day. What if they're acquired by law to reveal the information? They get subpoenaed, they reveal the information. Somebody who builds the tech to be private by default gives whatever information they have, which is almost nothing because the, the software didn't collect that information to begin with. You know, so I just think it's going to take a lot of good people working on this tech to make it, you know, more private. And there's a lot of like private forks of popular technologies. Like uh, Bromite Browser is a fork of Chrome, and it is private by default. It doesn't save history. You can also like route your traffic through like the Onion uh, proxy, which is like it's like Tor. If you turn it on and you use an app, like while it's turned on, then it routes through that traffic through the Tor network. Like I just don't think as long as you're building your technology to collect information on people. It's going to be opt-in and it will always be opt-in. Like the only way that we can not make it opt-in is build these technologies so that they can't be evil and that they can't like 
collect data on us. And big tech didn't used to be this way. I mean, Apple used to be a private focused company. They used to protect their user data. They used to encrypt everything. And at one point, they told the U.S. government that they're not going to hand over records of their private customers. That changed a couple of years later. Do you think that the hurdle to create these uh, inherently private systems is even greater? Because as you're trying to accomplish at foundation, devices is almost a superior UI UX experience so that the user is going to navigate, or excuse me, move toward that device, that experience over some other simply because it's a better experience, not necessarily it's because it's more private. Right. No, I completely agree. Like if the UI and UX is not there, that technology will never be adopted. Like privacy, we believe this, that privacy can't be mainstream if it's not just as good or better as the incumbent technology. Because it takes most people a personal experience to switch over. Most people are not going to have this uh, realization that, oh, shit, like I need to protect myself. Right. Exactly. So can you share with us, uh, whether it's your own, your own personal thoughts or opinions or what you're doing at Foundation that might create that better experience? I think one thing that's important is community. A lot of people don't talk about this, but, you know, if you're getting into a new technology or into a new space, having a supportive community behind that is really important because um, you're going to run into roadblocks. Things are going to get hard for you. Like when I tried to flash uh, Calyx on my phone for the first time, I had a really hard time, but someone in the community helped me with that. So I think building open and friendly communities is number one because you have to make this technology appealing to people. Like, you know, the culture matters. And like, we've seen that in stuff like the uh, the Ethereum space, like within the board Ape culture, they created a cool culture behind it. And a lot of people started to adopt NFTs as a result, and they started liking that. So community is number one. Um, number two is having like um, support for that technology. So that's like, video guides, uh, one-on-ones, Q&As, podcasts like this, just to give people a chance to like learn how to use the tech better. And I think, like you said, the UX is the most important thing, just making it easy to use. Because even like people can lie all day long and say like, oh, I use this tech because it's more private, but they're still like using their other tech or, you know, like I have... Like in my personal life, I have more than one phone and I use an iPhone for social media, my social media apps, because it's just so much better with user experience for those apps. So we just have to keep making UX improvements and we need to go outside um, our like echo chamber and ask people who we want to use our technology, what they think about our product, um, what they want. Because we can't build something that we want. Like, we have to build for the mainstream. Absolutely. And that building involves a lot of, obviously, developers. And I'm sure Tornado Cash was alarming to you. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on that, uh, both when you first heard about it, as well as your thoughts now reflecting on on what's been going on. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, Its timing was crazy to me because it was... A couple weeks after I had considered like 
starting to experiment with it. Like I wanted to experiment with it and start using it. And I had it on my to-do list. And then this news comes out that it's uh, blacklisted by OFAC. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't use this right now. But it was very alarming because this was the first time that OFAC had blacklisted a piece of software instead of an organization or an individual. So their sanction is essentially not um, very enforceable. Doesn't mean that it's not valid because they can definitely catch a lot of people uh, through these sanctions. But the first thing is, if you're a developer of privacy technology, you should remain anonymous and you should make your contributions uh, private. Like you shouldn't be a known person just because we live in a very hostile environment. Uh, we live in a surveillance state and like people who are developing technology that undermines uh, the government should not uh, be showing their real life identity. It's a little bit different if they're talking about that technology because they're not inventing anything, you know, but it was just to me very sad and it sets a very scary precedent for the whole industry. And I should have mentioned this at the outset, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Tornado Cash was essentially an Ethereum equivalent of what is known in Bitcoin as a, as a mixer, meaning uh, Bitcoin, or in this case, Ethereum, goes in uh, from multiple addresses. It gets, quote unquote, mixed up and spits out private anonymous Ethereum, in this case, on the other end. Is that correct? Uh, yes. I just want to draw one distinction, though. So when you refer to something as a mixer, that means it's custodial. So that means like a centralized entity takes custody of that coin, whether it's Bitcoin, Ethereum, does the mix and then disperses it. In this case, it was more of like a like a like a tumbler or like a I don't know like a coin join. Like not, it was like a non custodial right uh, case, and that's what makes it even more um, unique and alarming. Is because Tornado Cash was not custodial, and they still sanctioned this tech and the Bitcoin. Uh, mixers that are non-custodial fall under the same category. So what does that mean for us as uh, primarily Bitcoin users is that maybe the uh, OFAC department goes after our coin joins, goes after Whirlpool, goes after uh, Wasabi or whatever people use. Yeah, and I, and I think they are going after uh, Tornado Cash because they're, they're tying it with uh um, terrorist activity uh, or something to that degree. But it made me think about something Caitlin Long said a few years ago uh, that I believe Trace Mayer put into her head even further back. And that was that the same thing could happen with Bitcoin in the sense that authorities could say, well, the Bitcoin that you have has ties back to X event, X illegal situation. Yeah. And you now own a piece of that, some of those Satoshis. Therefore, you're, you must surrender that amount. So, and I think that's certainly possible. And it's something that, that, that Caitlin Long brought up as far as a, a legal precedent um, that, that sounds like is more plausible than it's, than it's not. Is that something that you've thought about? Yeah, honestly, I completely agree with her. She's completely on base because it is so easy, um, especially with a network like Bitcoin to tie different transactions together and tie someone's activity um, to something like criminal that happened to like with a previous owner. And Bitcoin is not private if you have all of these 
on-ramps that are tied to the legacy system interacting with it. Because the authorities understand that they can't stop Bitcoin at the protocol level, they regulate it like on the social level with their like mainstream news and like setting the narrative and uh, with the on-ramps and exchanges. They control the on-ramps. They can essentially control uh, the currency. And that's what Caitlin Long is referring to. It just makes it so much easier to tie different pieces of Bitcoin to a specific individual when that individual is interacting with a protocol through an exchange or through a, a KYC on-ramp. It's hard to imagine how this might play out, you know, in the coming years when Bitcoin is more popular, more people have it. I'm sure a lot of it will be custodial. Um, and there has to be a threshold that by which uh, at some point that threat seems mitigated by the mere fact that so many people own it. Uh, nonetheless, in the interim, let alone in other nation states that we should not forget about who face uh, even more authoritarian regimes, that threat is, is certainly plausible. And do you foresee technology developing whereby the custodial services um, follow the same path of, of, of privacy improvements uh, as, as wallets are, as, as hardware wallets? Do you some, see something like Fediment being able to provide something like that? Yeah, so this is kind of like a loaded question. But number one is I don't believe that uh, Bitcoin is an antidote to authoritarianism. And what I mean by that is simply holding Bitcoin that you bought on Coinbase, that's going to help you defeat the state. That's a completely false premise. And honestly, it doesn't make any sense. And we already have proof of this because since inception, uh, Bitcoin has only grown in value, but the state has only grown more powerful at the same time. And if you look at places like Shanghai or Iran, the amount of Bitcoin that you hold in these places is irrelevant. You know, like your life is still beholden to whatever the government says is the current policy. Um, with that being said, I do believe that there will be privacy improvements in Bitcoin on the wallet level. That's actually where most of the privacy improvements happen uh, the, on the protocol level. The development has actually been very stale with respect to privacy. They they released Taproot, but honestly, it doesn't really do much. And um, like the coin join stuff and like the postmix spending tools like they have in, in Samurai Wallet, it's all in the wallet level. So I think at this point, it's like we have to rely on the developments um, on the wallet level to improve our privacy. I think um, Pediment improves privacy, but it doesn't improve anonymity. Fediment uh, still requires trust. And in some cases, that's actually just as bad as, they call it second party custody, but it's just as bad as the third parties because they say, oh, you can trust your friend or your family member to hold one key. Well, in a lot of countries, um, they're known for like disputes among family and they are more likely to want to trust a bank than their uncle who tried to steal their land uh, when X person died. Like I've seen this a lot, like in Lebanon, we have family disputes all the time. Uh, we have disputes in communities and I don't think fediment is going to mitigate that. So it might work in, in some situations, 
but I don't think it really solves the uh, the trust issue. Like, I feel like it's just replicating what we already have um, with multisig. Anything else to add to uh, that we haven't touched on that you would like to bring up? Yeah, I mean, the only thing um, that we should probably address is like the limitations, um, Bitcoin uh, privacy, just like a couple things like users who are using Bitcoin for the first time should be careful, like not to use addresses more than once. You know, uh, the more you reuse an address, the easier it is to build a profile on you in your activity via looking at like chain analysis uh, or using a blockchain explorer. And then uh, another thing is I definitely would not recommend using a software wallet that doesn't connect to Tor by default uh, if you're not running your own node. And if you're somebody who transacts very regularly, I encourage you to run your own node because if you're not running your own node, you're using someone else's node. And that's not really ideal if you're someone who uses Bitcoin a lot. If you're just a hodler, you don't really have to run your own node. It doesn't increase your privacy if you're just holding holding Bitcoin. And I think that's important because some people can get turned off of Bitcoin if they think, oh, I have to run my own node and I have to buy a hardware wallet and I have to, you don't have to do all that. You know, you have to figure out a plan based on what your goals are. If you want to hold a lot of Bitcoin long-term, definitely get a good hardware wallet that is open source, but you don't have to run a node and you don't have to like coin join everything if you're just spending that money to cold storage with the intention of just leaving it there. Perfect. Thank you for bringing that up. I didn't mean to ask you that. And so to that end, why don't you share some of your your privacy tips for for general privacy, whether that's uh, in in online life or offline? Yeah, I think number one is compartmentalization. So this is the best way to obtain privacy if you're new, like using different browsers for different purposes. Like I have a browser that I just use for online shopping, so I keep that information there. Um, I use a phone for an iPhone for social media. And then I keep all of my Bitcoin related stuff on a separate uh, mobile device, which is actually de-Googled. So my thing is you want to interact with Bitcoin privately. You should keep all of the Bitcoin related stuff on a different device versus the device where you're like calling your aunt and shopping and using social. Like if you're doing all of that with the, the Bitcoin stuff on your phone, I mean, Apps share information with each other to build a profile on you. And you don't want that, uh, your information about like your Bitcoin being associated with your other stuff. And then, you know, privacy is like, uh, it's a journey. So it's okay if you don't get everything right. Like you're not going to get everything right overnight. And like, I'm still learning stuff. My thing is just replace uh, one app at a time. So like if you're on iPhone and you like to take a lot of notes, delete the Apple Notes app and replace it with standard notes, which is encrypted notes. That's like one thing. Um, if you don't want separate devices and separate browsers, then what you can do is if you have an Android, you can download this app called Instalar. What it does is it isolates the app's activity while you use it so that app's metadata does not leak out which I think is is really cool. Like I could fire up Insular and use Twitter and I'll be okay. Uh, it's just like taking that step-by-step step and then definitely uh, use a VPN for all of your online activity. I have to do this call out because ExpressVPN 
and NordVPN are the most heavily advertised VPNs on the market. But these VPNs are owned by big tech and they sell your data. So I would just avoid those two at all costs and use something like iVPN or Molvad or Proton. Perfect. Thank you for sharing those. And, and again, I want to emphasize that when we're talking about privacy, I think many people default to keeping secrets. And that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about empowering the individual to have the right to disclose the information that they want to disclose to people they do not know who may or may not use that information uh, for, again, nefarious purposes, whether you find that to be uh, malicious advertising all the way up to, uh, again, more malevolent activities. And so this isn't about secrecy. Again, I, I look at it much like health in the sense that you take actions and to prevent uh, the heart attack down the road to prevent preventable cancers down the road. Right. And the very much should be uh, like privacy in the sense that you don't want those bad events, events to occur, not that you expect them to, not that you want them to, but that you will do everything that you're empowered to prevent them in the, in the first place. And so with that, Lily, my last question, that one that I ask every person is that, what gives you hope? You know, for me, it's, people who are grounded in their principles and people who believe that there is a better future. So for me, the white pill is not a technology, not even Bitcoin. The white pill is sovereign individuals, you know, who are left on this planet, who care about their communities, care about their future, care about their, their children. Like I see people, you know, all the time who really take it upon themselves to live life intentionally. And these are the kind of people that give me hope. People who don't just give up when things seem hard or seem impossible. Like they just keep going and they keep trying to make an impact on their lives as well as like the lives of others. Would you mind sharing with us somebody or something, an event that maybe instilled that sentiment into you? Well, um, one thing that some people know about me, some people don't, is I'm a corporate dropout. So I left my corporate job at 22 years old uh, with no plan. I just decided to quit. I was like, I don't want to uh, be here. Uh, I don't want to sit in this cube for uh, many years. Like, I don't think that it's right to say, uh, wait your turn or you're too young, or whatever. Like, people said all kinds of stuff to me. But doing something like that, and not only doing it with no plan, but doing it by rejecting, you know, a really high offer, I went and I got some something um, in line with the salary that I asked my former boss for, and higher, just so he could know that somebody's willing to pay that. That was the only reason. Um, but I ended up declining that too, and that was the situation that really forced me um, to deal with my flaws, you know, like it forced me to learn a lot about myself because if I didn't develop like this resilience, I would be back in that office sitting there. So I think to me, that's what like changed my life. You know, I had to learn everything that they didn't teach me in school. I had to learn to, to trust myself and to be more confident and to, to be patient and to do multiple things at once. And, um, I had to learn to uh, have everyone and everything against me if I wanted to live a life 
that most people only dream about having, honestly. So that that changed my life completely. Uh, I talk about it now, like, I'm really glad I did that. I also look back and I say, I can't believe I did that, you know, because it's like so insane for someone that young to just throw everything out without not knowing what's next. And basically said to myself, I have the money I have. I burn through it. I go back in the cubicle. And until then, I don't care. I'm going to risk every single penny to try to create a better life. And I think that kind of ties into like Bitcoin and sovereign tech and privacy, that if you want something, you need to work for it. And you need to be willing to put in the effort and you need to be willing to get rid of stuff that was convenient and get rid of stuff that uh, didn't serve you. And that's not easy. What gave you the courage to leave at 22? Well, I always had this um, desire to do something more. And I, I never really looked at what people said and thought, okay, well, this is the advice that everybody follows and I'm going to do it too. I think I got a little bit um, overconfident because uh, since I was 18, I never had a bank account. And the reason I never had a bank account is because I always uh, believed it was BS and I knew that inflation would eat it away and I would never get the life I wanted if I put in the bank. I don't know how I just like caught on to this and started to understand, but I understood and I took every penny I had made basically from 18 to 22 and I put it in the NASDAQ and I bought a bunch of tech IPOs and I saw that uh, big tech was the future. Ironically, I did well on big tech and now I'm preaching against them. (laughs) But I think making these calls and making them so consistently gave me that confidence to feel it because you know people older than me and like everyone in my family was like why are you buying these like why are you buying uh roku why are you buying alibaba like no one wants to use this shit that's what people told me and i'm like no you're wrong like this is gonna be the future and i was investing in in cloud computing i was investing in flash storage like all of this stuff that's now common was like just starting out in 2015. So I think that kind of gave me the courage. I'm like, well, if I did this before and I stood against what people told me, I'm going to do it again. And I can do it again because of what I did. The decisions I made before gave me the capital so that I could do this. And when you left, though, you said that you were faced with kind of a rude awakening in being isolated in a sense and having to face your your faults. What were the ways by which you you did that? And given your experience, given your success at a young age, what gave you the humility to actually acknowledge those faults to yourself? Well, one thing I tried to do uh, when I left was to be like a day trader as part of my um, income streams. I didn't expect for it to take as long as it did. You know, it took like so much like trial and error to like figure out what I'm supposed to be doing and uh, what I'm supposed to be looking at. I think when you put yourself in a situation where you have to pay attention all the time, you have no room for error, you can't be emotional. And 
in that, in that, that's where I discovered where I'm wrong. I'm like, okay, well, I think I'm too impulsive was one thing. I think I'm not as patient as I should be. I think that I let small stuff affect me too much. Like that's all the stuff that I found out while I was uh, working to be a trader. And now um, I can do it successfully, but I had to change how I thought. Like I picked up a stoicism book. I picked up a book about like worrying and anxiety. It's called the worry trick. And it taught me how to like rewrite my brain. Like I had to set myself um, a schedule. Like I have to get up every single day at 6.30 like I was in the corporate world. Like why, if I did that for someone else, like why can't I do it for myself? So I bled through some money for a little bit until I learned different skills um, to kind of fill in the gaps. But now I engineered my life in a way that because I have um, different skills and like different income streams, I don't have to be in a situation where I'm relying on somebody. You know, like if I really hate what I'm doing, I can leave. Like no one has a gun to my head. I don't have uh, crazy payments that I have to take care of anymore. Like if I'm working somewhere, it's because I genuinely like want to. And I think to have that in my early 20s is such a blessing. And if I didn't go through all that struggle, I wouldn't have gotten it and got really bad some days. I'm not going to lie. Like I've almost called the old office multiple times. I actually ended up deleting the number of the guy who gave me the six figure plus offer because I'm like, I can't call this dude. Like I can't do it. I deleted the number. So yeah, I think it pays to be bold. That That's courage. And do you feel like all these steps that you've taken to improve yourself have actually made you a better person for others, for your friends and for your family? I think so. I mean, now I'm like more understanding of, of people's situations. And I, I genuinely want to help anyone that I can because I want to be that person that I wish that I had to support me. You know, like someone's stressed out or someone's getting affected by what people are saying about them or like they want to do something, but they're, they're afraid. Like I'm able to like, just tell them like, here are the experiences that I had. And like, you know, like I know this person, I can connect you here. Like I can teach you how to do this. Like I really want to see people succeed and someone else's success doesn't take away from mine. And I think that as a society, we've gotten into this, uh, mindset that someone else winning is actually your loss and that's why we have so much hate and so much negativity being thrown around because we're just being like pitted against each other but in reality the world is full of opportunities and, and resources and there is enough for everybody like i truly believe that thank you for sharing all that it was it was wonderful and I, in the bitcoin space we speak about the self-sovereignty the sovereign individual and I always try to emphasize the fact that that means nothing unless you're able to use those gifts in turn to help others. If you're not helping others, as it's been said, you're wasting your time. And so I'm happy to see that yeah. the path that you've been on and thank you for sharing the lessons that you've learned. I'm sure that'll definitely help others that are listening. 
And so uh, with that, Lily, why don't you share where people can find you? Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for having me on, Mark. I think it was a great conversation and I've had a really good time. And anyone who wants to reach me can follow me on Twitter at Markets by Lily. If you have any questions, please send me a DM. DMs are always open. Uh, you can also send me an email if you like at marketsbylily at protonmail.com. Perfect. Lily, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Progressive Bitcoiner. If you enjoyed the show, head on over to Apple Podcasts and please leave a review. And don't forget, we have a website, theprogressivebitcoiner.com, where we have a lot of great content on Bitcoin and progressive issues. Thanks again for tuning in.